love to preach the word, but I'm glad you guys get to hear from other people that God is using around the world. Uh, but this morning, if your Bibles are open, Galatians chapter 3, we'll start with verse 19, picking up where we left off. Starting with verse 19, I'm going to read uh, the whole text this morning, and then we'll just come back and go through it. Starting verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been given a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But but before faith came, we were under... Uh, We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But faith has come, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, we pray now your spirit would move in a mighty way. Lord, you'd fill me for your glory. You'd use your word to instruct me and your people. Lord, we need, collectively, we need your word to cleanse us, to teach us, to lead us, and to guide us. Lord, we ask that uh, you and you alone would be glorified, your word would be lifted up, and your spirit would speak exactly what is needed to each person. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Hudson Taylor, he was the great missionary that God sent to China, and he was uh, one of the first missionaries that actually uh, adopted the dress of the place that he went, and, and even the Chinese later would say he seemed more Chinese than he seemed European. Uh, but the great missionary Hudson Taylor, when he went to China uh, and, and preached, he, he uh, learned a lot about what it means to have faith. And he wrote this. He said, there is a living God. He is spoken in the Bible. He means what he says and will do all he has promised. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that we have a living God who means what he says? Do you believe that we've come before a living God this morning and that we've opened his living word this morning to understand and appreciate these living promises? Four times in this passage that we just read, verses 19 through 29, and nine times in chapter 3 alone, we read the word promise or promises. Aren't you glad God keeps promises? Boy, you and I have made a lot of promises in our lifetime we haven't kept, haven't we? I seem to make one every week, and you feel bad about them, don't you? I'll be there at... You can count on me, right? I'll pick it up at the store. A lot of men have failed at this one, right? 
Two minutes later, you can't remember that you were supposed to go to the store. We've all broken promises. But if you've been with us the past few weeks in Galatians 3, this is what Paul is, is conveying to the Galatians. That the, the promises of God are true, but they're kind of falling away and following something that are not the promises of God. They're actually the deception of man. And what he's been conveying to the Galatians is that simple faith in Jesus brings the promise of salvation. The the works of the law, our pride, self-righteousness, well, all that brings is death and condemnation. Paul has been examining the confusion of the Gentiles. They've been confused. They've been unsettled by false teachers. And the law of God, of course, is not to be confusing. And the law of God is pure and holy. Would we all agree with that? The law of God is pure. Always has been, always will be. But is the gospel, answer this question for yourself, is the gospel a reminder to return to Moses or is it to turn to Jesus? Well, it's to turn to Jesus. These teachers that had come to Galatia, they were saying, you need to look back to Moses. You need to go back to the law. And these are doctrines and questions and eternal issues that Paul has been addressing and continues to address here in chapter 3. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can see the title of our time in the Word this morning, the purpose of the law. We'll look at three things. First, this purpose, which I've just titled function. We want to look at the function first and foremost. The law has a purpose. It has a function. It's still in your Bible. The Ten Commandments are still there. In fact, the Bible says if you've been saved, the law of the Lord is now written on the tablets of your heart. So we don't, like, resist the commandments of God. We actually receive and accept them and say, wow, I love that I no longer have to take the Lord's name in vain. I'm glad that God has put a new spirit within me not to covet everything that's out there. Now, our flesh still covets, doesn't it? But the Holy Spirit says, no, you don't have to live that way anymore. He's written the tablets of truth and the commandments of God in our heart. That our flesh likes to lie because we think it usually makes things better for us. But the Holy Spirit says, no, that won't make things better for you. You can't live that way anymore. Our flesh naturally is drawn towards idolatry, in which is just about everything around us, right? Anything can become an idol. And so we're drawn to those things. The Holy Spirit will knock on our heart and say, hey, this is becoming an idol in your life. Do you hear when God speaks that to you? I know I do. And it never feels good, does it? Because I will immediately, like you, kind of rationalize, this isn't really an idol. It's just a hobby, something I like, or this, that, or the other. But the law, he says, if you go back to what we looked at uh, a few weeks back, Uh, in in part one and part two of Galatians, remember that in the verses previous, look at verses 17 through 18, um, we see here, uh, Paul says in verse 17, I say the law which was 430 years later, this is 430 years after Abraham. Paul has already mentioned that the law, 430 years after Abraham, um, when you think about that, we know that Abraham through whom God would establish the Jewish nation. Abraham was the first 
person that God chose and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. He had to wait, remember, a long time until finally Isaac comes and then Jacob and then the nation is born of the 12 sons of Jacob. But uh, we know that's the physical nation of Israel. But there was more to it. God said, I'm going to make your descendants of the stars of the heavens. You're going to have a lineage that will go far beyond just that nation. But we know the law through whom God established the Jewish nation uh, was pure. It was holy. But since it comes 430 years after Abraham, to go back to our previous study, we know that you couldn't get saved because of the law, because if that was the case, then Abraham couldn't have been saved. Because the law didn't come until Moses. We're talking about the codified tablets of the Ten Commandments. No, Abraham was saved by faith, according to Genesis 15.3, and then Paul reiterates that. You could look down at your Bibles back in the same chapter, verse 6, Galatians 3.6, so just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul's referring back to Galatians 15.3 to say, hey, for these Jewish false teachers that are saying, you can only be saved if you follow the law, well, then Abraham would be disqualified because the law came 430 years after him. We know from verses uh, 10 through 14, we won't review them, but just, uh, again, we covered those. In verses 10 through 14, we know that the law requires what? Perfection. It's hard for us to comprehend. We were having this discussion Friday in our men's Bible study here, the one that we just recently started, uh, 7 a.m., men. 7 a.m. This commercial has been brought to you. No, anyway. So while we were having that discussion, we were talking about the fact that we, we actually we, we have a misconception of God because we know we're not perfect, but we still people, especially before people are saved, they still think they're good, even though they know they're not perfect. Kind of the way we would say, well, well nobody's perfect. How many times do people say that? Well, nobody's perfect. So we kind of think that because we've all made a little slip up here and there, and if I use a sports analogy, well, of course, LeBron James isn't perfect, but he's close to it in a sports perspective, right? Or, hey, I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm the best at my job. And we think that these things, little, little gaps in perfection are okay, but with God, it requires 100% perfection. So if you say, I'm going to keep the law, God says, all right, you have to meet my standard, which is out of your stratosphere, perfect. That attempt to be justified by the law, according to verses 10 through 14, actually places a person under a curse. What is that curse? Well, the curse is that there will be future judgment to come, because the attempt to perfectly keep the long law will always what? Fail. No one will ever keep the law perfectly. Paul didn't do it. Moses didn't do it. Abraham didn't do it. No one's ever kept the law perfectly. And then we look at verses 15 through 18. Again, going back to our uh, previous study, uh, we know from those verses that the covenant promises that were given to Abraham And those who have like faith, well, those promises don't come through the law. We know that the inheritance of God, which is what? A future home with him. From the same verses, they don't come through the law. So the future inheritance, that doesn't come by the law or through the law. They come through the promise of Jesus Christ. 
we approach God now through the covenant, the new covenant the Scripture taught. When we take the Lord's Supper, we, remember Jesus says, this covenant is the new covenant of my blood, he says. So we approach God in the new covenant of Christ's blood. We don't approach God, we don't take the Lord's Supper say, and now under the law of Moses we take this cup. Right? Have you noticed we never say that? Why? Because we're under the new covenant. This is what Paul lays out in verses 20 and 21 here. He says, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. In other words, Christ didn't need to come. We could just keep keeping the law if life could come through that. Now, in these verses, these are very... Did you kind of understand every word of those verses? I've reiterated this before. Peter says, the things Paul writes are hard to understand at times. He was theologically very deep, spoke multiple languages, had studied the scriptures from childhood. But when he was born again, God took his intellectual understanding, and then it was a force multiplier by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God used him to write much of the New Testament. What Paul is saying here is a couple of things. Let's try and uh, understand what it is that uh, he's getting at. One of the things he says now, in verse 19, he talks about the promise was made, it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Yes, there really are angels. Cherubim, seraphim, we know that angel came to Mary before uh, the Holy Spirit came upon her. There have been angels all throughout. They're God's messengers. They're at the throne of God. There are angels around us even now, and they love when God's word is pouring forth. There's also fallen angels. There really are demons. And and they're doing work in the world. And there's a battle going on in the heavenlies with principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places and the armies of God versus the armies of Satan. Of course, God could end it at any second he feels like. But for whatever reason, he allows this to happen until all of his plans and purposes are accomplished. But these angels, uh, according to Jewish tradition, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, The Jewish rabbis believed, and Paul now confirms that that tradition, that oral tradition, was true. By the way, some oral traditions in this world are true, and some oral traditions are not true. If the Bible confirms it, guess what? It's true. So the rabbis had taught that their understanding, going all the way back, that had been passed down from generation to generation, was that when Moses received the tablets of the Ten Commandments, God delivered the tablets into the hands of angels who delivered the tablets to Moses. And this is what he's speaking of here. He's appointed through angels. They were as if a mediator, Moses, the angels, and God. They mediated. God wrote them with his finger, literally, on tablets. The angels handed them to Moses, and then Moses comes down the mountain. The first time he did what? He smashed them because the people had returned idolatry. The second set he came down, they went into the Ark of the Covenant, which was then... Uh, later put into the temple. But these tablets were given to the mediators of God, and those were angels. Um, now, it says, in verse, uh, it says in verse 20 as well, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. How about that for a verse? See, Christ is now our mediator, and he not only is with God, but he actually is God. Jesus 
himself says this. He said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, the Word was God. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, he calls Galatians chapter 3, verse 20 here, this, this verse, the 20th verse, he calls this verse probably the most obscure verse in Galatians, if not the entire New Testament. There are at least a couple hundred views from Bible commentary and scholars on this one verse. Because a lot of people are like, what in exactly is Paul saying here? Now, when you get to heaven, you'll, you'll know exactly, I mean, to the letter, what, what God said to Paul here. But we can get a strong inkling, and many of those commentators are all collectively right. It's just, we, it's like the facet of a diamond. We're just looking at different angles of it. We're still looking at uh, the same diamond. Boyce goes on to say, uh, the general thought seems to be that the promise must be considered superior to the law because the law is one-sided. The law was mediated, and this means that man was a party to it. Mediated means that Moses was on one side, God was on the other, and there was mediation there. The promise, on the other hand, is unilateral because man is not party to it. Isn't that great to know? Jesus is the whole thing. That's great to know. And we know that the law was given to Moses there on Mount Sinai. In fact, that's in Exodus chapter 20 if you want to read about it. And when that law was given, we know it has tremendous benefit to society. We talked about this in previous studies and to the culture because why? A law that comes from God, well, it protects society from chaos, from violence from theft, from self-ruin. That's why we're praying for revival. If our nation would return to the law of God, we actually could be saved from the very things we spend millions of dollars trying to fix. God can fix them overnight. But if the law can't save it, even though it's good for society, even though we know it's pure and holy, but if the law itself can't save a person from death, what's the purpose of the law? Or... Specifically, what's the primary purpose of the law? Because there's more than one purpose of the law, but Paul's getting at the primary purpose here. To those who were born in the age of the law, and even us to today, what is it that we think about when we think about the Ten Commandments? What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? A lot of people uh, you know, think the Ten Commandments are God's rules to make my life miserable. God's rules to eliminate fun. Right? That's the way a lot of people would view the Ten Commandments. God's rules to make me act like a monk. I don't know what, I mean, you hear lots of different people's perspective on them. Or then people would say, I don't even believe there is a God and he didn't write them anyway, and some man came up with this stuff. Now, most people would agree that a lot of the law uh, makes a whole lot of sense. I don't know many people that want to be stolen from themselves or murdered, Right? So the Ten Commandments has an awful lot of benefits we've talked about. But what was the primary purpose of the law back when it was given, and even right now today, in 2016, what is the primary purpose of the law? Because the Ten Commandments, someday, if a person dies without saving faith, they will be, the Bible says, the books will be open. Some of the books that are open will be the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Everyone will be judged by the law. Because they rejected Jesus Christ. So what is the purpose of the law? And we want to look at these three things. You can jot these down if you uh, want. The first one 
the law, it was added. It says right here, it says, what purpose, uh, it, what purpose then did the law serve in verse 19? It was added. Well, it was added because of transgression. The divine law of God was, of course, always operational even before the tablets were given to Moses. We talked about this, the fact that the global flood, the lawlessness of man, actually sin is actually in the Bible called lawlessness, it's the absence of law. It's the absence of restraint. Sin is the opposite, opposite of restraint. But because of lawlessness, God flooded the entire world, but he saved Noah and his family. So the divine operation of the law was already in effect because God was already judging murder and immorality and lying and stealing and cheating and all that stuff. And he's been judging it uh, ever since because everyone that has been born is appointed under man who wants to die, and after this, the judgment. So everyone continues to die and have to face God at some point. But the law was added in the Mosaic law specifically, or the codified tablets in these Ten Commandments. They were given to Moses and Israel. Well, they were given 2,500 years after God had placed Adam in the garden. So the the divine law of God, the conscience, all of that already existed but the actual tablets that someone could point to and say, these were written by the finger of God, they didn't come until 2,500 years after God had placed Adam in the garden. John 1.17, very important verse, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Law came to Moses. Moses couldn't provide grace and, and mercy, and could he? He could only present the facts. The facts are all of you are sinners. But Jesus, he comes along. He can only present that fact, but he can present grace and truth and his forgiveness. So it was added to be uh, another visible point to all of humanity. This is the difference between God's standard and man's standard. Two, it was until... It was until. It says, till the seed should come. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Till the seed should come. When people want to return to the law, you can show them this verse. Say, well, but Paul wrote in Galatians, till the seed came. That there's a change taking place here. That little till is an important word, or until. Until the seed had come. It was until the seed who is who? Christ. This goes all the way back to Genesis where God tells Eve, your seed shall crush the head of the serpent, that Jesus would be the seed that would crush sin, he would crush death. So this until is a very important word. It was until Christ came. The law was given until Jesus. So if people try to return to the law, they are actually trampling underfoot the work of Christ, the second and new covenant here. Uh, Third, It was to instruct and to bring us to the place where we saw our own impossible condition. It was to instruct. So Paul says at the end of uh, of, of, uh, verse 25, uh, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. A tutor kind of teaches us. The law teaches us that we need some help, doesn't it? This is what the law does. It instructs us. We then have to do what? We have to look 
to the mercy of God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. We were actually there, like I uh, mentioned, uh, that was coincidental, although there's no coincidences with God. Uh, but uh, that wasn't the plan. We were going through 1 Timothy. But turn over to 1 Timothy. Just take a right-hand turn for a, a few uh, books. Go through past Ephesians, past Philippians, past Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and over to 1 Timothy. And, you know, Paul had written to Timothy about some of the same issues that he wrote to the Galatians. And if you look in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, look what he says about verse 8 and 9. And actually it goes on all the way through verses 10 and 11. But look at uh, 1 Timothy 1, starting with verse 8. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, anyone who tries to take you back to living under the law is not using it lawfully. But if someone used the law to say, hey, you didn't know that coveting was a sin, God says it is, you need to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. That's using it lawfully. He goes on, look at verse uh, verse 9. Paul again writing, knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person. Now, none of us are righteous, but once you are saved, you're covered by the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, once you're covered by the righteousness of Christ, we're not trying to keep the law. We have the Holy Spirit that helps us fulfill the law because Jesus has already fulfilled it. So our life is hidden with Christ. So the law is no longer a condemnation or a curse over us. The law is, again, written on the tablets of our heart. Now we have Christ covering us, not the law condemning us. Do you see the difference? We're under a covering, not a condemnation. But if you're still without Christ, you've never been born again, well, the law is still a condemnation over a person rather than a covering of the blood of Jesus and written on the tablets of our heart. He goes on. He makes this clear. But the law is not made for righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, if there is any other thing contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul's like, and all other sins you can think of, is basically what he's saying. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Paul writes in Romans 3.19, he says, Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world guilty before God. Do you see the purpose of the law? It was added. 2,500 years after Adam, God comes down to Moses and says, Take these Ten Commandments, explain them to the world. It was then until there was a period of time. Now you might hear some people say, Uh, a theological term called dispensation. You ever hear that term? There really are dispensations of time. means that there are chunks of time where God has operated. He's the same, but he has seasons of time which are a little bit different from each other season. So in other words, from Adam to Noah, we have a dispensation of time. People lived longer, 600 years, 800 years, 900 years. It was a different time. And there was no law, and Jesus had not yet come either, but the divine operational law was already there. We call that the pre-Noahic period of time, if you will. And then you have from Moses to Jesus, and that's considered the age of the law. But now, after Jesus, we're under what? The age of grace. The age of grace, also called the church age. 
because he sent out the church to take the gospel. Now, when we go out to take the gospel, we don't take out the law. We don't take out and tell people, all right, uh, so-and-so, if you want to get saved, you better start keeping every inch of the law, and you better cut your hair a certain way, and you better wear this certain kind of dress, and oh, by the way, you better wear a yarmulke. Right? Now, I know that's not part of the Ten Commandments. What I'm saying is people that try and live by the law, they start to impose. Notice that they always impose other things that aren't even in the Ten Commandments. All kinds of other things. So, it was until, it it was added, it was until, and it was to instruct. It was that people would say, wow, I've, I've told a lie. I've used God's name in vain. I don't love God with all my heart. I love other things more than God. What would happen if I meet God on Judgment Day? I'd be guilty. Is there any way out? Yes. Next couple of verses. Therefore, the law was our, verse, 20, uh, verse 24 and 25, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by what? Faith. Faith. Function was our first thing we're looking at. Faith is number two here, if you're taking notes that we're looking at. So with no hope of keeping the law, and none of us have the ability to do it, we look for what? Mercy. Yeah, you know, you're before the judge. I've done this before. I thank God I haven't had to do it for like seven, eight years, but I have had speeding tickets in my life. I've had one in Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. But I've matured <laughs> because that was like eight years ago was the last ticket I've gotten. Even this morning, I was on my way to church. I noticed a Chesterfield police officer was doing that great job of watching for people. And uh, so I called my wife and I said, be aware that on such and so street, <laughs> the law is in full effect uh, over here. And so I'm calm, cool, and collected riding to church, and so should you be so... But there was a time when I was paying less attention, especially before I was saved. Most of those tickets were all in my 20s, and I got saved at the age of 26 or so. But again, uh, I would roar anywhere and everywhere. But later, I I got one of those ones like you have all gotten before, where you really weren't trying to speed. I truly wasn't. I missed the 55 sign, and I asked for mercy, and the judge gave it to me. Right? It was just one of those things like, Your Honor, I... Because when I was younger, I would get in more trouble because I'd try and like, be mad about it and everything else. But that was like, no, I really didn't see it. And he's like, you know, I believe you. No ticket. We can ask for mercy, but that doesn't mean we're going to get it. But if you ask for mercy from God and you mean it sincerely in your heart, he will know the difference of whether we mean it or don't mean it. Amen? He knows. And he'll bestow mercy because he's full of compassion. He's merciful. He didn't give the Ten Commandments because he wanted to club humanity and send them to hell, but that they would turn to him. So if we have no hope of keeping the law, we have to look for mercy. We have to look, for, we have to, look to what God provides on our behalf rather than what we can provide on our own behalf. What can we provide on our own behalf? Well, Adam and Eve tried this. Fig leaves. It's not much of a covering, is it? I wouldn't advise you to go to work trying to pull that off. I mean, it's not much of a covering what we can provide. Abraham and Moses, they looked forward to the Messiah. 
Jesus had not come when they were on the earth, but they looked forward. They believed that God was sending someone greater than them. Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, and him you'll actually hear. That's the fun work of a pastor, isn't it? Moses says, and him you'll actually listen to. Nine out of ten children of Israel wouldn't listen to Moses either. You know, people say, if Moses was our pastor, we would really do the right thing. No, you wouldn't. Moses did not have that kind of success. But he said when Jesus comes, the world would know that he is the only one that could provide life. Moses didn't have life-giving words. He had life-changing words. But Jesus was the life-giver. Moses and Abraham looked forward. They looked to the blood and the righteousness to come, who would be their righteous covering. So their believing was in the Messiah to come. And of course, once Jesus is revealed, well, and he's been revealed, we're looking back, but we're either trusting in him and believing in him for salvation, or if we don't trust in him and we don't believe in him for salvation, then we're willingly what? Remaining under the curse of the law. We are willingly staying under that curse. The curse of keeping the law, which is impossible. The curse of judgment for not keeping it, which is inevitable. Right? Impossible and inevitable, both will have impact on us unless we trust in him. You see, trust and faith in Christ is the only hope there is. Muhammad didn't die for anybody. Right? Buddha did not die for anybody's sins. All the great men and religious leaders and even women that people have looked up to, and by the way, even people that worship little statues of Mary, Mary can't save a person. Praying to Mary is not going to help because she did not die on a cross. She needed to pray to Jesus too. She was the one that said, this is, whatever he says, remember at the first miracle there at the wine of Canaan, she said, whatever he says, do it. She didn't say, whatever I say, do it. Because she was not the Savior of the world. She's not the mediatrix, which is a term that you'll sometimes hear, which is false. No, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Faith in him. He's the only hope there is for salvation, for forgiveness, for peace, to be made whole. That video that we showed, you know, uh, someone that's broken about sin they've committed years ago. Jesus is the only one that can heal that and actually give you peace of mind and a home in heaven. Faith, not works, brings us under the blood of Jesus. It's faith. Do you know here in the third chapter of Galatians, you know Paul mentions the word faith 14 times. Faith, 14 times. It's so important. We're justified by Christ alone, but we have to have faith. We have to believe in him. Martin Luther said the only saving faith is that which casts itself on God for life and death. Martin Luther. The only saving faith is that which casts itself on God for life and death. John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, what? Believe on him should have everlasting life. That word believe, it's synonymous with faith. It's such a simple verse, isn't it? It it seems to many people, do you know there's people that have rejected Christ because it seems too simple? Jesus said you had to become like what? A little child. Because children are okay with simple. The older I get, I'm more okay with simple. How about you? 
Things are getting too complicated in this world. I like simple now. But regardless of whether you like simple or you like complex, you need a simple gospel, but you need a powerful gospel. Amen? And it is simple, but it's so powerful. God's way to salvation is simple, but it is powerful. I don't understand. I really don't. I do not understand how something as simple as the gospel, but that genuine point of belief that takes place in the heart, which only God sees and activates and ignites a person to kind of light bulbs go off, and they understand the simplicity of the gospel. I don't understand how something that simple suddenly delivers a heart from sin, from judgment to come, from guilt, and all of our other efforts, religious and any other, but it does. It does. And i got to tell you, it is a wonderful thing when you realize that the gospel is what sets people free, not your and my smart ways of presenting it. I was, uh, I was um, having lunch with a group of pastors this week and from some various churches, and you'd know the names of some of them, and, uh, and we got together just to pray, and, and we were talking about what, what's been the most blessing this year, what's been the hardest things this year. I've had my difficulties this year. I'm sure you have too. But the biggest blessing, I said, well, we've seen more people saved this year than any other. Every one of them said, tell, tell us why that is. I said, here's the simple thing I can only tell you. I've started to go back and just believe that the gospel is powerful. And I hope that all of you believe the gospel is powerful. If you can say John 3.16 to someone and mean it, it is more powerful than the greatest preacher on earth. Because it comes with the equipping of the Holy Spirit. It is power. It seems so simple. How does something so simple just believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? That's what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Paul, don't you have more for him than this? Keep ten rules. Do this. Do this. No. That night, he was baptized in his whole family. It had that powerful impact. This is the power of the gospel. Almost a year ago, uh, it'll be a year ago, I guess, in about... 12, 14 days from now. We had Adams Road here. They did a musical concert, and they, and they also spoke and, and shared some scripts. You guys remember the Adams Road night we had? It was the first night we were here, which we're coming up on our one anniversary, um, October 2nd. It would be the same. Well, it was the 4th, I think, but that's that first Sunday in October to the first Sunday in October coming up. And remember when they, they were here that night, Michael Wilder, who was an altar boy in the Mormon church, grew up in the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, grew up in, uh, there, and his, fam- well, his family was so convinced that Mormonism was true that they eventually moved to Utah, and, and he, he was considered, I think, the youngest in the modern age, the youngest altar boy in the Mormon church. And he was devout. He was on his mission trying to convince everyone that the works of Joseph Smith were, were the true, that Joseph Smith was the true prophet of God and that this was the only way to eternal life. And he was going and preaching a different gospel, a false gospel, but he thought it was true. And then and he tells the story about that Baptist pastor uh, there in, in Orlando that he goes and he tries to convince the Baptist pastor that he's unsaved and that he needs to become a Mormon. And then remember the pastor told him to challenge him just to read the New Testament like a little child. And he did that and got saved. And now they travel and his brother got saved and different friends. And just this week on September the 14th, I, I believe that was Wednesday, 
Um, this is what he wrote on it. He did a Facebook post. They're on the West Coast. They actually just performed in the last two weeks at two different Calvary chapels and uh, several other different denominations. Uh, but he said this. He's, I love this story. Uh, he has his own salvation, which he continues to rejoice in, but he writes this. He said, I recently received a Facebook message from one of my LDS, Latter-day Saint, friends from high school. He told me that he had stumbled upon the Adams Road testimony videos a couple of years ago out of curiosity. He heard the gospel message and began to study the New Testament, and now he said he is leaving the religious system of laws and works and wants to have a personal and saving relationship with Jesus. It's amazing how God has changed the lives of so many people in my life by the power of God's word. Jesus is salvation. He alone is all we need. It was many years ago that Martin Luther wrote, faith and faith alone. Faith and faith alone. This is what God, that simple saving faith. I don't understand, because I had asked, how many of you, I won't have you raise your hand. You had said sinner's prayers multiple times before you were soundly saved. But there was one point when it came out of your mouth and it was connected to the heart. And you've never had to try and re-say it again. Now, you might have said it, just rejoice with other people, but for the most part, you now know that, oh, no, this one was locked, sealed, and delivered. I truly was born again. I had a road to Damascus time where now I've been changed. And when we have that saving faith, it's just trusting in Jesus and him alone. And, you know, I've seen people walk the aisle and say, but how am I going to clean up my life? You're not. You're going to trust that Jesus is going to do the work and help you clean up that life, and he does. Last thing we want to look at, and this is a, a really encouraging way to end here. Actually, it's all been encouraging, I hope. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all in one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What a beautiful passage. If you're here this morning and you didn't have a family before, you do now. This is what Paul's saying. And you gain that family through what? Through faith. If you don't have a family... You can have one today through the resurrected Jesus. And there's people that don't have any family left. But if they get saved, they will have a family. This is very clear. God adopts people as his own. You know, an adopted child is just as much of the family as the non-adopted. Amen? We've all met adopted kids. I don't hear them saying, I'm not really part of this family. No. The adoption is genuine. They're part of the family. This is what God does. This verse, in verse 27, for as many as you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This verse certainly and and most uh, directly applies individually, that we're individually baptized in Christ, but it also applies collectively, that the church is baptized into Christ. We're baptized into the body personally when we're born again, and the church collectively was baptized into the body of Christ at Pentecost. The whole church, God baptized the church into his body. And that's why you have one collective church body, but individually we're also baptized into Christ. And so it has that dual meaning. Look at verse 28. Uh, the family here. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. The family that Jesus has assembled by faith, 
All like faith. The same faith in Indonesia, the same faith in Malaysia, the same faith in Russia, Brazil, California. Yes, even California. All of those same places. Sorry, I like to pick on California sometimes. I'm sorry, the left coast of our country. I'm kidding. I'm getting into trouble, sorry. But the same faith, no matter where you're from. Same faith. Jesus is assembled and will someday bring all of those in this family of like faith for an everlasting family reunion. Won't that be great? You might not always look forward to family reunions. You'll look forward to this one. An everlasting family reunion where everyone is equally valued by God. Everyone equal under the cross. There's no more kings or presidents or prime ministers or rulers but King Jesus. There's no more upper class, middle class, and lower class. There's no more upper management and lower management. There's no more racism. There's no more slavery. There's no more men versus women. There's no more battling for rights. There will be true and genuine, actual, living, breathing unity. Not what's called unity. It'll actually be unity. It's called the family of God. Jesus himself will gather his family and he'll pour out his love on this family and his unity will be a collective of every tribe, every color, every culture, every geography, every language and all will be there speaking one language, could be Hebrew. Possibility, we don't know. We'll speak one tongue at that time and we'll worship God in what? Spirit and in truth. This is the family of God. Are you part of that family? Are you of the seed of Abraham? Turn with me. We want to close in a passage in Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to close here. Isaiah 41. I just felt led to read this passage to kind of tie a bow on, let, let God tie a bow on all this from his own word. Isaiah 41 is written to the nation-state of Israel. But it's not only written to the nation-state of Israel. It's also written to spiritual Israel. What's the difference? There really is a true Israel. There really, God really has put his people back in the Holy Land today. There, God has revived the nation-state of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 37, I believe are becoming real and have become real in our very lifetime. There is the real physical Israel... And God has a very specific plan for the real, physical Jewish nation. That's where my brother Sam will talk about some of those things next Sunday. But then there's also the spiritual Abraham's family, and that's because I'm not Jewish, but I, and you are too if you're Gentile, you are part of the spiritual family of Abraham. So there's literal Israel and there's spiritual Israel. And they're not a contradiction, they're complementary to each other. But as we come to a close, when we come to heaven, you know, someday, Abraham's children, Abraham's bosom, that all the children of Abraham will be both Jew and Gentile. And so when we read this, we'll read it looking at the spiritual Abraham's descendants, even though, uh, again, there is the literal as well. Look at verse 8, chapter 41. But you, Israel, are my servant. Now, the spiritual Israel is the church. We are also the servant of God. 
Jacob, whom I have chosen. God has chosen us. He's chosen you. He's chosen Calvary Chapel of Richmond. He's chosen our brothers and sisters uh, in other churches and denominations. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. Jesus said, I now no longer call you just servant. I call you what? Friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. These are all the tribes and nations and tongues and people. And have called you from the farthest region. This also has application to the literal Israel as well. And said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you away. And look at verse 10. This is the God that you now have as your father. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will uphold you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see... The future family reunion is true. But if you look back at Galatians chapter 3, you'll see that he says there is neither. It's a current state. There is neither now Jew nor Greek. Already we are the family of God. Already we are to reflect this unity. Already we are to be one. Amen? Already our like faith should transform us into one loving, unified family. Let's pray. Lord, we just bow before you now. We're so thankful that uh, you have delivered us from the perfection of the law because, Jesus, you were perfect, that you kept the law. Not a single sin found in you. You were found without deceit, and yet you were led as a lamb to the slaughter, and you died for our sins. And so we thank you and praise you, Lord, that uh, we're not under the curse of the law if we would but look to you. And I thank you for every brother and sister here that has already looked to you for salvation. But Lord, if there's a single one here this morning that has yet to take that step of childlike faith and simply say, Jesus, I'm putting my faith and trust in you. Cleanse me. Forgive me from sin. Adopt me into your family from now and for all eternity. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, prick that heart and say, today is the day of salvation. For, Lord, your gospel is powerful. And, Lord, if there's anyone here you want to set free from sin, from guilt, from shame, from anger, from whatever it is, from unforgiveness, and, Lord, adopt them as your son or daughter, I pray, Lord, that they would know that it is not me speaking. It is you speaking by your word directly to them. And for the rest of us, Lord, that you would re-strengthen our faith. That we would return to believing the simplicity of the gospel and let it have a powerful impact on our life. And Lord, let us act like family members to one another and truly love each other for love covers a multitude of sin. We ask these things in your name. Amen.